And it says, verse six, it says, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Now, let's walk through this. It says, when they heard this sound, we're not sure which sound this was. We don't know if it's the mighty rushing wind or if it was the sound of their own native language being spoken. Like, we don't know. But whatever it was, the gift of the tongues brought people in. Like, it, it moved them so that they could get closer to what was going on. Now, the crazy thing is, is that when they heard it in their own voice, they looked and they saw that these men were just Gentiles. Now, Gentiles in their context were unlearned men who could not speak well. So to put it like us in, in our context, it would be like you walking in and somebody who'd spent the night under the bridge living in the City Union Mission walked up on the stage and began to speak so eloquently that you would be amazed and bewildered that he could speak like this. And not only that, but he would be speaking in Spanish, which only you would know. Like that's what's happening in this moment. Like this is what's playing out. Now the question becomes why? So think clearly for just a second. Here we have on this specific day, on this specific time, every God-fearing Jew, at least one from every nation under the earth, under heaven, showing up to the same exact place on the same exact day, on the same exact time. And they're all bewildered. They're all amazed because they're hearing their own native tongue in their ear about the amazing works of God. Why is this happening? Like, why is this happening? And so if you think through this, like if you've got any history in the Old Testament, you'll remember there was a story where men's pride welled up among them. And they said, hey, we're going to be like God again. And so they come together, they start to build this tower. And the Lord says, listen, I've done been down this road with men's pride. This will not happen. And until the day that I've set forth, I'm going to scatter all of you. And the Lord himself destroys the tower. He disperses all of their people and he gives them separate languages so they can no longer talk. We call that the Tower of Babel. Now, from the earliest church father, not one of them will disagree that what's playing out here is the fulfillment of that story where the Lord is bringing them all back. He's bringing every tribe under heaven back to the same spot. But this time he's giving them a clear message from heaven. And he's speaking directly into their souls. Like he's making them all of one accord. Where in the Old Testament he had to separate them for their pride. In the New Testament he begins to bring them back together and show them his grace and mercy. And so all of the God-fearing Jews, all of them are here hearing this story. And it says... Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, Pontus, Asia, Phrygians, Pamphilus, Egyptians, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, Romans, Jews, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they said, what does this mean? What does this mean? 120 people speaking into their souls. Because here's the story. Before we go much further, I just want to kind of relay this to who we are. Like, 
what's happened to them has happened to us. Like, like think about this. Like, like these guys, these Jews, they would show up on the days of the festival. They would go to Jerusalem. They would do their thing. And then they would all go back home and live their lives again. Now, how does that play out in our lives? Where once a week we go to the festivities, we go to the celebration, we go to church, and then we all go home and live our lives. But on this particular day, something shifted. Like something changed here. Where they could no longer just just go about our business and say, you know what, we've come to the festival and now we're going home. Something shifted in them. And I would say to you that the Western church is no different than this. Like the Western church needs a shift to where we no longer just go to the celebration and then go home. Like it needs a shift. Like we need the Lord to redo this again. And I believe on certain levels he is. And so he rolls in and he says, some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the elders, with the 11. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, there's a ton happening here. So let's just, let's just walk in this, all right? So the first thing I want you to see is like, some, however, some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine to drink. Why would they say that? Why would they say that? Because here's the thing. What had they witnessed? They'd witnessed 120 people speaking in different languages. Now, some will tell you that this is the fruit of the Spirit, that they got drunk on the Spirit, and I will tell you to be careful with that. Like, these men were not drunk on the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is part of that. It's called self-control. So these men were not drunk on the Spirit because they were full of the Spirit, meaning they were fully in control, although the Spirit was moving through them. And so what did the gift of tongues do? It brought the crowd. And what did the crowd do? They mocked them and they were amazed. And so if you're here this morning and you're part of the crowd, that's what you do. Like sometimes you come here and you're amazed and sometimes you leave and you mock. That was all that the tongues brought. The crowd who was amazed and the crowd who mocked. And then Peter stands up with the 11 and he raises his voice and he addresses the crowd. Now think through this. You've got 120 people prophesying, talking about the goodness of the Lord. So the Spirit is now alive. He came to sit with 120 people and they're all talking. But here it says that Peter stands up and begins to address the crowd. So what happens to the other 120? What happens to the 119? Like what happens to them? And I will tell you, they cease talking. Like they stopped so that Peter could address the crowd in one language, the native language of Jerusalem. Now, why is that important for you? Because what it shows you is another piece of how the Spirit works. Like the Spirit never works against Himself. He always works along with Himself. Like think about what Jesus said. He says that the minute that the Spirit comes to live in you, that you're alive. And because I and the Spirit are one, I can no longer deny you. 
And so in this play, the spirit is working with himself because he cannot work against himself. A house divided shall not stand. So when you come to me and you're like, the Lord has told me to go do this, I'm always going to ask you why. Because if it doesn't align with his word, then it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And a lot of you will say, well, God has told me this. And I will tell you that unless it says it in his word, then he may not have told you that. Especially when you're doing things that go directly against his word because they cannot deny each other. And so Peter addresses the crowd. All 119 voices stop and Peter's voice raises up. Now think clearly through this. Like Peter did not prepare a message. When Peter woke up, he did not have a sermon in his back pocket and he surely did not think that he would be, think he would be speaking to thousands of people. So what Peter begins to do now is to speak out of who he is and what he knows. Like he's beginning to quote Joel and Psalms and most theologians believe that what he's doing is the things that he's unpacking for them is what Jesus unpacked for them in the 40 days. Like if you remember the Emmaus walk, you remember that story. It says that the Lord had to unpack the Old Testament scriptures so that he could understand. And so he begins to unpack for him stories like, do you remember when David said, the Lord said to my Lord, come and sit with me and I'll make your enemies a footstool? Well, he was talking about me. Do you remember that when Joel said these things, that the prophecy will come and that people will dream dreams and that old men will dream dreams? Like he was talking about this season. Like he began to illuminate their eyes. And so what played out for him was this story. And Peter, out of who he was, just began to preach the gospel. And what you'll notice is that these men's hearts did not change until the gospel was preached. The tongues did not make their hearts change. The the, the hearing it in their native language did not make their hearts change. The only thing that was going to shift them was when the gospel was preached. And it's the only thing that's going to change you. And it's the only thing that changes me is when the gospel is preached. It's the danger of putting too much emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit and not on the gospel that causes those gifts to move. And so as this story begins to play, here's what he says. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Why is that important? It's only nine in the morning. And so let's talk through this. Was it not your Savior that was crucified at nine o'clock in the morning? Was it not? Like if I remember the text clearly, like that's what it says. It says they brought him out at nine o'clock in the morning and they put nails in his arms and raised him up on that cross. And here we find ourselves 50 days later at nine o'clock in the morning where the gift of the Spirit is being given to His church. So let's think through this. Let's put some of this stuff together. Same day as the Savior's crucified, 50 days later. Same time in the morning, 9 a.m. Every God-fearing Jew is in this one specific spot. And the outpouring of the Spirit fills them all and purifies them, giving them something fresh. Like, think about Peter. Like, here's the story of Peter. Like, when I think about things that I've done that I know caused the Lord to grieve. Like, I think about Peter making eye contact with the Lord on the third time that he denied him. And Peter running off in the wild and crying. 
Like that's a hard moment to overcome. But yet you see him rise right here, right now. Like all this Peter that you used to know, he's beginning to walk out the door. Now let me just kind of explain. I'm going to explain some of this to you next week on how this works, but I'm going to kind of give you just a teaser for just a few seconds. Like here's kind of some things that happen with the Spirit. Like as the Spirit begins to mold you into who He's formed you to be, what happens in your life is that God begins to take precedence and people begin to become smaller. Like when you first come to know the Lord, like the majority of us people are still really huge in our lives. Like your identity comes from people. But as the Lord begins to move you, like he becomes larger and people become much smaller and your identity begins to shift. I'm going to show you on paper how this works because there's dangers to understanding this philosophy. Let me explain to you how this worked for me. Like in my starting of this church, New City, like when I first began to preach the gospel, you were way bigger than the Lord was for me. And I would get off this stage and I would be concerned about what you thought about me and whether you liked me or whether I did something well. And here's what I would say to you today. You are not bigger than the Lord for me. And in fact, I will go even further and I will tell you that just like this day, this day, every Sunday is dedicated to the glory of the Lord. It's dedicated to the power of the Lord. It is not dedicated to you. The problem in our lives is that you think life has been dedicated to us. Like that's the problem with me. Like every time that life begins dedicated to me, everything falls out of, out of control. This day, this day the Lord has given us for his name, for his renown, for his glory. And if you're here and you don't know him, praise God that you're here. Because just like me, you're sitting on a roll where the Spirit is wooing you in and drawing you into confession and drawing you into conviction and drawing you into the grace of who Jesus is. And so I praise God for you. But this day is not about you. It's about him and his glory and his name. And just like Peter addresses the crowd, so I will address you. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my soul and my spirit on all people and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And so what Peter's doing is like, listen, you know the story of Joel. The whole book is about condemnation for Israel until you find these little nitbits where the Lord says he's going to do something fresh. And what he is doing now is that freshness. Nowhere in this does he say that the prophecy of Joel has been fulfilled. He just says the prophecy of Joel is in the process, meaning that what's happening right now is still happening. Like there are those of you in this room who are dreaming dreams. Like read about them. The Muslims all over the world are prophesying and dreaming dreams of Jesus. So are you. Some of you have log books of you keeping up with your dreams because you know this is true. Up until this moment, up until Pentecost, the world was on a crash course with this moment because heaven did not reside on earth but after this day the kingdom came here not in the form of one man but in the form of thousands because jesus said it i must go because i am encapsulated in this human form but when the spirit comes he will move from man to man and instead of there being one spirit-filled man on this planet there will be thousands of them millions and this is what's playing out this is still in line because on Pentecost, the worlds collided and heaven came. Heaven broke into the earth. 
And now we are running side by side, waiting for the day when we look up and we see the Lord's face. Because that is the last step. So if you're a dispensationalist, like I don't, I don't know if you're a dispensationalist. Like let me explain to dispensationalism is like there's seasons of the world. Like if you take Nebuchadnezzar's statue, you'll understand that there are seasons of the world. I, at some level, am a dispensationalist. And I believe that we are living in the last season, which is known to dispensationalists as the season of grace. And that's what Peter is saying here. He's like, listen, the Lord came and he changed everything. And we're living in this season, man, where everyone can know him. And he says, this season will end. And he ends it with this prophesying of Joel as well. He says, I will show in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. Like he's beginning to prophesy the last season. He says, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Meaning that this is the last season. Like right now, everyone has the chance to know him well. And there will come a time where he will show up and everything will turn to blood and all the femurs will break. And he says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Power here. Like listen to the power. Like prior to this moment, like you don't get this because you've always heard this. But for them, all they knew was to slaughter animals year after year. And now what they're saying is, is, listen, if you call on the name of the Lord, if you call on the name of Jesus, you will be saved. And for them, that meant massive repercussions. Because to call on the name of Jesus and to make him Lord means that you had to attach Old Testament verses to the name of Jesus. Like words and verses that were aligned only for deity had to be connected to Jesus. And they had to fit his name now. And for them to take that step was massive. It's not so massive for you, but I will tell you the same context comes for you. Like for you to call on the name of the Lord means that the things in your life that you've called Lord before can no longer be called Lord. Like it's part of the walk. It's part of the walk. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. And I will say to you, fellow Americans, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan, meaning that it was God's plan for Jesus to die. It says, God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, let's think through this for just a second. Like, replace that word you with your name. Like, like, with the help of wicked men, Chris. With the help of wicked men, Casey. With the help of wicked men, Matt. With the help of wicked men, we crucified Jesus. And so he'll go on to call this generation a perverse generation. But I will say to you, did Jesus Christ die for every sin, both past, present, and future? And to that, we must answer yes. 
And so if Jesus died for all future sins, that means he died for the sins that I committed today and for the sins that I committed tomorrow. And so am I guilty of putting Christ on the cross? Yes. Am I guilty of being part of a perverse generation? Yes. So am I primed for the gospel spirit to roll into me and to draw me into conviction and to draw me into repentance and to make me primed for salvation? Yes. Yes. And it says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the past of life. You fill me with the joy in your presence. Now, what is going on here? Like, there's some deep meaning here. Like prior to Jesus, like prior to the story of Christ, like here's how the world worked. Because you are a murderer and insolent and devious and that your heart is wrapped with wrath. Like, let's just be honest. Like if we were to put everything in your heart in the last week up on the screen, we would all be appalled. If I was to put up on the screen all the wrath in my heart for the last week, everything that I thought, everything that I said, you would be appalled. And because of that, man, the way the world works is that our role is to enter the grave and let the world destroy our bodies. Because that's who we are and that's what we deserve. Like that's the way the rhythm of the world was made. Like no one was meant to die in the beginning. But because of Adam and Eve, like because of the sinfulness of our heart, the world opened the grave because that's where we're supposed to go. Because Jesus walked and because his heart never went there. Because his heart never went there. He defied the odds. Like everything hinged on him walking this life out. Like it is, the, it is the cornerstone of your faith and mine. Because he walked this out, because the spirit was alive and well in him, he walked this out where the grave was not allowed to touch him. The world was not allowed to swallow him up because he was holy when he went in. Great theologians have wondered about this, and here's what they say. The grave could not keep the Holy One no more than a woman could hold the child inside of her. And for that, we say hallelujah, because he went in as the first fruits. He came out for us, because what we could not do, he did. And just like the great theologian said, as a woman who could not hold her child in her, nor could the grave hold this man because he had done nothing for the world to hold him in there. 
And this is the beauty of Jesus. And this is why David said, he's like, man, I understand now. Like in his spirit anointing coming on him, he's like, I see the Holy One and he has not decayed. Meaning that he does not belong to this world. And because of that, I know that's where I'm going to be. He's like, you have shown me the path. You have shown me the joy of living. And when he said this, people's light bulbs began to go off. And he goes on to say, he's like, listen, guys, you know that David died. Like, you know he did. But yet he had enough in him to see that he saw Jesus. Like, we are all witnesses that the grave could not hold him because he had done nothing for the grave to keep him. Like, he defied the odds. He defied every rule of this earth. And the spirit was alive in him. The same spirit that rose him from the dead is the same spirit that's invading Pentecost, which is the same spirit that now is alive in you and I. Like the reason this happens on Pentecost is because Jesus would be called the first fruits. Like that's what it calls him in the New Testament. Like he's the first one to come out of the grave because the grave could not hold him. And because you and I now get to put Christ on, we defy the odds as well. Like the grave cannot hold us no more than a pregnant woman can hold her child as well. And this is the story. And what you hope is happening for you is hoping is happening in the same exact places of these people. It says that some of them were cut to the heart with this. He says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that our patriarch, David, died and you know where his tomb is. But he was a prophet, meaning that he could see things that you and I can't see. There are some of you in this room who can see things that you and I cannot see. And he goes on and he says, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. Like, here's what he's doing. He's bringing them back into rematch. He's like, listen, everything that's happening today has been foretold. Every piece of this. Like the church is fixing to explode because all of this has been ordained. And I'll give you even more here. The reason the priest flows the bread back and forth was still veiled to them. They didn't know why that was happening. Numbers 29, 29 is clear with us. It says, there are things that the Lord has taught us so that we can understand him. And there are things that he has kept our minds and our eyes veiled from so that we will not understand it so that we will still know that he is God. In this moment, as they're still waving the bread back and forth, they have no idea what they're doing. They're just doing it out of obedience, which is still good. But I will tell you that that veil has been lifted. It was there not two pieces of bread, one for the Jew and one for the Gentile, so that the Spirit could come live in us both? It's what he's doing. Like this is the power of Pentecost. Like everything shifts on the cosmic level on this day. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, no longer look for the signs of fire or the signs of tongues, but look for the fact that the Spirit has come sit to sit with you. That the grave can no longer hold you because Jesus is the first fruits. And he goes on and he says, God has raised Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured it out and is now what you see and what you hear. 
For David did not ascend into heaven, but yet he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so when you read this, he's quoting Psalms. Again, one more place. One more place that is so confusing. The Lord said to my Lord, like, what does this mean? And what everyone believes about this is this was another text that the Lord unpacked for them when he came back. He's like, listen, that, that first Lord, that's Yahweh. That's the Father. It's the God that you've always known. But the Lord that David saw was me. Like I was the one. I was the Holy One who didn't see the decay. I was the one he saw resurrect. Like I'm the one. Like it's me. Light bulbs. Verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, both Lord and Savior. And he says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, let me ask you this question. Who in the world can make you say, what shall I do? Is it me? No. Was it Peter? No. The only person that can do this is the Holy Spirit. Like he drew them in. It wasn't the power of the tongues. It was the power of the gospel that cut them to the heart. And they said, brothers, what must we do? And my hope for you is that you would say the same thing. You would rise up and say, man, what must we do? And I would say, call on the name of the Lord Jesus and make him both Lord and Savior. Don't circumvent one without the other. Charles Spurgeon, probably one of the greatest, I think one of the greatest preachers ever. This is what he said about this moment. He said, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus and makes him Savior alone, without repentance and without turning from their sins is no salvation at all. And in fact, it is something that the Lord himself will not accept. But the one who walks from his sin and no longer calls those things Lord, but calls Jesus Lord. Now that is a conversion that Jesus himself will accept. And that is a conversion that I will tell you is the only one that can be. In the Western church, we've made this up where we're like, man, you can get up and accept his grace, but you cannot accept his grace without making him Lord and turning from the things that you used to call Lord. And so I would encourage you in this moment, like because the Holy Spirit came is the whole reason that you're here. And the whole reason that you're here is so the story continues to play out in you. And the more you begin to walk in step with the Spirit, the more the body begins to play the more holy you become and the more the church begins to move. And so as we begin to move through this the next two weeks, I'm going to talk about more about walking in the Spirit. I'm going to talk about the dangers of not knowing things well, the dangers of putting things into a box. I'm going to talk about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk through um, um, making the Holy Spirit weep. I'm going to talk about those of you who believe in the first and second baptism. I'm going to talk to you about baptism in the Holy Spirit. Like we're going to walk through those things. We're going to revisit the gift of tongues. And I'm going to give you homework every week. Next week, I'm going to give you homework to just try this. Just to try this. But I can't do that without finishing this story. 
And it says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Meaning change your mind and agree that God has done all of these things so that you could know him. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a promise for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. For all whom the Lord God will call. Now this promise is still in play. If you're a grandpa, if you're a grandma, if you're a mother, if you're a father, if you have no kids whatsoever, this is for you. He says that on this day, on the day of Pentecost, on the outpouring of the church, so that 2016, that you and I would still be walking in step with the Spirit, that the church would be continued to move, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord and makes Him both Lord and Savior will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The first time this has been promised ever in this book that he will come and sit with you. And this gift is not just for you. It's not just for your kids, but it's for your great grandkids, your great great grandkids, and all who are far from that day who will call on the name of the Lord. It's for all who will call on the name of of the Lord is a promise that the moment you call on the name of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit comes to sit with you. And in you, the church will continue to move. The church continues to move. It is your story. It is not some story for far off. It is your story. The day that this happened, your story came to play. And wherever you multiply your life, this day becomes your birthplace. This is the power of Acts chapter 2. Stay with us as we continue just to walk in the power of the Spirit, who He is, what He does. Three weeks. God, you are good. Praise your name for this group of people. Lord, I would, I would ask you, like as the Spirit resides in us, for us to begin to learn to walk more in him. Man, for us to, to challenge ourselves, to let him come upon us suddenly. And Lord, that we would find ourselves in situations where he just hits us and says, do this now, Lord, and that we would be open to that and responding. And Lord, I would pray by the end of this series that all of us have done that at least once. And then we have a story to share. God, you are good. We ask these things in the name of your son. Amen.